from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have either chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life or who have a relationship with the Baha'i faith. Today, I'm playing an interview with William Deal. Bill is the former director of the Helen Baha'i School in Davison, Michigan. He is now the executive director of a 501c3 organization called Diploma Plus. I started the interview by asking Bill where he grew up, and what was it like growing up there? Well, I spent the first seven years in Detroit, Michigan, but that was my first seven years, not a lot of memories. My major part of growing up was outside Philadelphia, Valley Forge area, and it was a beautiful area, um, definitely a middle-class area. It was one of these areas that was built up after World War II to welcome back all the returning GIs who went into business, and uh, that we had a big... Uh, GE Space Center nearby, so it attracted a lot of very smart kids. It's a wonder, wonderful area, very, you know, very high-class schools. What was religious like, like growing up? Well, I grew up as a Lutheran, and part of the story growing up is when I was six, my mother was pregnant with my youngest sister and started having all kinds of abdominal pains. And at first went to the doctors, and the doctors decided it was the baby acting up, kicking, and so on, and gave her medicines. Gave her medicines to tranquilize the baby, gave her all kinds of things. And finally, she grew excruciatingly sick, took her to the do- another doctor, and discovered her appendix had broken. So rushed to the hospital, and it was kind of give and take whether she would live or my sister would live either, or whether my sister would be brain damaged. I mean, it was really a horrible time. So my father got down on his knees, and he prayed to God, and he said, God, if you bring my wife and my daughter back, I will give you my son. Oh, wow. And so I was, from that point in time, tagged to be a Lutheran minister. And how old were you at that time? Six. So you know I had no <laughs> idea what your, your father was doing to you. Right. <laughs> well, it was plus, you know, good and bad. Yeah. Good and bad, right? Yeah. 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 Interesting. Yeah. Well, growing up, I had a couple of pretty strong religious experiences, and I did feel this mm. sense of calling. And mm. However, as I got older, you know, high school and college, it became increasingly evident to me that Christian religion or any traditional religion, by excluding other religions, was really not, not, I wouldn't say not of God, but wasn't inclusive in the way that I would think that a creator would be. So a loving creator wouldn't automatically cast half of his creation to hell um, just by virtue of where they were born. It made no sense. And so I, growing up, I also had a couple of my relatives who were Baha'is. My uncle was my mother's oldest brother, it was a, lo- a long-term Baha'i, and in fact, he was the secretary of the Baha'i Assembly when I was growing up in, in Wilmette, Illinois. So I was aware of the Baha'is. I had two cousins who I was very close to were Baha'is. Our family was all very dedicated to civil rights. You know, went to the watch in Washington and, mm. you know, very, very firmly that way. But mm. my cousins were the only ones who really put themselves on the line. So my two cousins were down in the South doing Buddha registration, went to jail, all kinds of things that really when I was in junior high school, were very striking to me, you know, and really uh, touched me in terms of people not just saying they believe something, but really putting their, their lives on the line about it. 
Um, so as I got older, I was investigating and kind of branching beyond being a Lutheran minister. I, of course, was attracted to going, going to Baha'i firesides and events and so on. You said at one point that you you felt a calling to be a Lutheran minister. Mm-hmm. How long did that last? Mm, probably six or seven years. Until you were in... Senior in high school. Senior yeah. in high school. Yeah. Yeah. And then what happened when you were a senior in high school? Well, I was definitely becoming more and more disillusioned with organized religion, period. I also was part of a protest group. It was 1968 and 69, you know, very involved with anti-war movement, civil rights, and so on for a high school mm-hmm. student. Looking back, a suburban high school student in that realm was a little ridiculous, actually. Nevertheless, um, that's, that's where I was. So I was more and more disillusioned, and my father knew that, pretty unhappy with uh, kind of where I was. And so one day, after church, a family comes back home after church, went to church every single week. And my father sat us at the dinner table as normal, got his Bible out, and he read the story of the book of, of Abraham and Isaac. And the story of Abraham and Isaac, of course, is that Abraham, God tells Abraham to, as a show of his faith, he needs to sacrifice his son Isaac, his only son. And so the whole story is Isaac, Abraham taking his son Isaac to the top of the mountain to kill him. Um, and Isaac doesn't know what's going on until he gets to the top. Abraham's about to kill him, and then a ram shakes its head in the bush which is God's sign of you don't have to sacrifice your son. So my father read that whole story, closed the book, and looked at me and said, you're released. That's what happened. Yeah. What does that mean? It, it meant I was no longer bound to be a Lutheran minister. And did he know you were troubled by? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you were sort of going through this process of telling your father, I don't think this is where I want to, yes. the direction I want to go. So then he said, okay, you're released. I think his expectation was he'd release me, but I'd still come back around yes. of my own volition. I think what, right. he, what he was understanding was I was where I was, not totally by my own volition. It was, your parents give all kinds of subtle and not so subtle signals about what they yeah. want you to do. And, and now, your father was not a Lutheran minister. He wasn't a Lutheran minister, but a lot of his best friends were Lutheran ministers. Mm-hmm. So he's, he's been very active in Lutheran church. He was the only lay member of the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America. Board of directors, um, so very, very active in the church. And so when was it that you started checking out the Baha'i faith? Well, I went to Antioch College after high school. And if you know Antioch, it was a very, very, very liberal place, especially at that time. And I, I went there because I didn't want to go to college. The co- choice was going to college, going to Vietnam at that point in time. So Antioch really afforded me a way to not exactly go to college. Um, it primarily did work-study arrangements. And after the first two semesters there, that's all I did. So I didn't go back to campus after those first two semesters. And I spent the last two years in Philadelphia um, working at a, at a street school for young people in North Philadelphia. It was really a life-changing experience for me. Again, white, middle class, thought I was you know, with it, but I was very naive, um, really made me confront all my own prejudices and, and, uh, and you know, really worked through some very difficult things. But also it was a very welcoming place real sense of family. We had 50 young people. Um, all of them were, had been kicked out of other schools and kind of their last chance. You know, kids with court records and gang members and the whole nine yards. But they really were welcome in this place and really mm-hmm. belonged and made a lot of interesting progress with these young people. At the same time, they're up against all kinds of things outside of the school. You know, so they'd be doing well in school and then there'd be a gang war on Friday night between two opposing gangs you know, and even two of the students being different gangs. And, you know, you could do nothing to prevent that. We had some kids who were homeless. We had kids who were, you know, being abused. You know, a whole range of things that were outside your control. In a lot of cases, they were not even within their family's control. 
So one of the things I remember that really t- you know struck me at the time and kind of moved me places was we had young, one young person there named Jack who was a very um, really wanted to succeed. He really wanted to go to high school, finish high school, go to college. He lived in the projects nearby um, near the school and came every day religiously and really and he was the staff loved him very much adopted by him. And then um, we started learning from other students that the gang and the projects was pressuring he and his grandfather, he lived with his grandfather, to let, let them use their apartment to sell drugs. Okay. And the grandfather wouldn't let him do that, right? So one night, the gang came in and killed them both. Basically, the cops said, you know, basically didn't blame anybody for it. They just basically got away with it, in essence, right? You know, in my mind, it was just very striking. So we're work, I'm working, you know, 24-7, as all, all the other staff, on you know, trying to really help these young people attain an education. And they're up against so much stuff that's beyond their control. So to me, it became more and more clear that we're not talking about education reform. We're talking about a change in society. Mm-hmm. These mm-hmm. issues are way deeper than and, and really require a fundamental change in how we treat each other, you know, and why we do business in basically every way that we conceptualize ourselves and our, our fellow human beings. Mm-hmm. So I started going to firesides at that point. And firesides are the meetings that Baha'is had that basically people could come to and learn more about the Baha'i faith. Would you say that was sort of a discouraging moment that it sort of triggered a search for you or what? Well, I think the search is already going on. I think yeah. this whole awareness of almost insurmountable problem that surrounded these young people that were beyond, that were really society problems. Mm-hmm. Um, but this particular thing like crystallized it. You know how one event will just bring totally into focus and you no longer can ignore it because we white folks are really good at ignoring that reality so even though i was right there in the middle of it you know i was able to know it but not really pay attention how long did you go to baha'i firesides before you figured this was what you wanted to be more involved with? i went i went for well several months i i did know a lot about the baha'i faith to start with because mm. i knew it from my uncle aunt and cousins and in fact one of the things that prevented me from going to firesides earlier or becoming a Baha'i earlier was my uncle was so well-known in the Baha'i world. So at this point in time, he was now in Haifa Mm -hmm. as a member of the Universal of Justice, which is the world's supreme body Mm -hmm. for the Baha'i faith. Um, I had already gone through a lot of my life kind of following what my father wanted, so I didn't want to now suddenly follow what my uncle wanted, right? Yeah. So I was, you know, pretty cautious about this. And then one day, a man, Solomon Atkins, came to the fireside. I told him about this concern. He knew my family, you know, and he kind of gently affirmed the fact that that wouldn't be at all what would, was going on. So mm-hmm. there's something about the way he was and the way he approached this mm. particular dilemma for me that made mm-hmm. it a no-brainer. So I became a Baha'i in, in February that year. The next morning I wake up and I go, oh, my God, what have I done? <laughs> you know, because I spent my whole year as a Christian. And it's a major, you know, when you know about the faith, it's a major commitment you're making a commitment to walk down a path. You're not making a commitment. You haven't changed overnight. But what you've changed is kind of your pursuit and your direction to some degree. Mm-hmm. So it was, oh, my God. So I walk into school, and I, myself and an African-American guy just loved, were co-leaders of one of these groups. And I had no idea about this. So I walk in the next day, and he's at the board in the social studies class. He's comparing the black Muslims, Christians, and Baha'is. It turned out he was a Baha'i. I had no idea he was. Oh, really? Yeah. So it was like this affirmation, right? So it sounds like you were heading down the path of education at this yes, point. Yes, right. 
was it something that you just sort of fell into those two years after Antioch or or those two years as work studying Antioch or was it you said yeah I think education is the direction I want to go into uh, I always had an inclination for teaching and always had a mm. I think a certain adeptness at it uh, but it wasn't until I went to Philadelphia and started working in this field center so Antioch at the time had these field centers all over the country the one in Philadelphia was focused on education um, and so I basically signed up to go there for six months say for two years basically because I loved it so much and it also was transforming for me. I mean, mm-hmm. I learned more than any of my youth did during mm-hmm. that time. Um, so I really got committed at that point in time to education, and specifically mm-hmm. to education for young people who have been placed at risk. So my whole career has been focused on that particular issue and the whole question of how do we improve outcomes for these young people who have been left behind by no fault of their own. And it's, it's an almost intractable problem in this country. Um, so now, what, 35 years later, I still am working on it, different angles, but... So you were on this particular project for two years, and what was the circumstances that had you leave that to move on to your next? I got married, and my okay. wife and I decided to leave Philadelphia. I um, see. And we went to South Carolina, and so this was early seventies, and um, in the late sixties, early seventies, there had been a lot of people become Baha'is in South Carolina. I mean, a lot of people become Baha'is, um, and so we basically moved to a town called Ellery, South Carolina, small town near Orangeburg, um, like. 800 people, and 80 of them were Baha'is. Mm. So a very strong number of Baha'is. And basically, you know, we were down there to really help kind of form the community and, and hold meetings and so forth. So that's primarily why we moved down there. I ended up teaching in a program for seasonal migrant farm workers. So again, it kind of met my ongoing passion mm-hmm. in education. And how long did you do that for? Three years. Mm-hmm. And I went to Indiana University to get a doctorate in uh, literacy, adolescent literacy. And early on, I really understood that literacy was a major barrier for these young people, not just for school, but for their lives. Because mm-hmm. so much, we have to do, at this point in time, so much lifelong learning. Without a strong literacy background, you really are, are crippled in the 21st century. So even back mm-hmm. then, I focused on that. Got a doctorate, taught at University of Michigan in Georgia for a while. Then I, taught, then I went to Lou Helen High School, as you, as you may know. Yeah. So tell me about what Lou Helen Baha'i School is and what were your responsibilities there? So what brought me to Lou Helen Baha'i School, I, I was also very active as a Baha'i. And Baha'is you know, have a lot of both service activities and teaching activities and, and uh, community building activities and so on. And I was really feeling both, I had two young kids, I was spending a lot of time trying to build an education career, which as a young professor is really tough, and being active in the community, which I wanted to do. And so when this job at Helen Baha'i School, which I'll explain in a second, came up, it was attractive because I thought it was a, would be a way of me combining my professional interests, education, with my commitment to the Baha'i faith and, and to Baha'u'llah and, and the Baha'i community. So that's what led me there. Now, the Helen Baha'i School is one of a few um, schools in the country. There aren't so much schools as they're retreat and conference centers. So Baha'is um, are all over the country. And they don't tend to congregate a lot in one area. So there's always been more of a focus on having Baha'is in a lot of places as opposed to all the Baha'is gathering in one place, like the Mormons in Utah, for example. That wasn't. And so there are some communities with large numbers of Baha'is, like Boston, San Francisco, and so on, but typically not. And so Baha'is established these schools or retreat centers, which became places for people from a large geographic area to come together 
and have family activities, do study groups, a lot of children's activities. Um, so, you know, it was a school in the sense of a lot of education went on, um, but it wasn't a full-time Monday through Friday, you know, eight to three kind of a school. So I was director of that school for eight or nine years. It was a quite an experience, and uh, yeah. I definitely loved it and very challenging as well. Yeah. As part of what we did there was we um, also actually did establish a school. So the guardian of the Baha'i faith, whose name is Shoghi Effendi, wrote a lot about Luhelan Baha'i School and the other schools as well. And he talked about Luhelan Baha'i School as being, in the future, a university. So taking that to heart, the council and myself and the staff there started developing a, a small residential college. We had an arrangement with the University of Michigan in Flint and Mock Community College. And the notion was that kids, either from other countries, who were children of Baha'is who had gone to other countries to serve the Baha'i faith, or kids who were from inner cities, we had a number of American Indian kids, came to Luhella and they stayed in the dorms there, and they took classes at the University of Michigan in Flint or Mock Community College, and basically we were the residents. And we provided community activities and you know, a lot of Baha'i building kinds of things. And we did that for five years. Yeah. What's the history behind Lou Helen Baha'i School? How did it get how did it get started? I mean, was it in, endowed by a Baha'i or a couple of the early Baha'is in Michigan were named Lou and Helen Eggleston, hence Lou Helen. They had the farm basically outside Davis in Michigan. Um, and they basically opened it up for the Baha'is. They started building it out. People started coming there. All kinds of great stories from elderly Baha'is about their experiences mm-hmm. there. So my uncle and aunt, you know, went there a lot. And a lot of stories about they used to have Saturday night dances as part of it. And they were the only integrated dances around. And they were getting all kinds of trouble with the local, you know, because of that. But it was a real important center for Baha'i activity because there weren't enough Baha'is in one place to mm-hmm. really build a community. So we continued that, and we did things like establish a children's camp for Baha'i children, and we did an awful lot of youth and, and younger youth activities. So it was a little bit different than sort of the direction you were going in with the uh, Philadelphia work it and was. their study as a, in your PhD. Right. Almost a diversion in a sense. It was a bit of diversion. Yeah. I also, at the same time, was teaching at University of Michigan. So they gave me an adjunct position there and. Um, so I was keeping my hand in the pot, but uh, mm-hmm. it was a diversion, yep. Did you become aware that maybe you needed to continue the work that you had started before Lou Helen, and that's why you thought about moving on to the next phase? The combination of that and my wife really wanted to pursue a doctor of her own, of her own and basically was accepted at Michigan State and commuted for a while. And we basically decided that that wasn't working well with you know, kids who were in elementary school at that point in time. So we basically decided to move to Lansing, and I resigned my post. And I ended up getting hired by Michigan State University to work in, they had a major um, education reform effort going on at that point in time called the Michigan Partnership for New Education. And there are a couple of folks in the state who put in millions of dollars in this effort. So I was hired on to help with some of the community and parent engagement and some of the the work around disengaged youth. Mm -hmm. So I got back into into the effort that way. And then the director of... The person I was reported to left after a year. He brought me on. Really loved this guy. He came to Boston and took over the presidency of a place called Bay State Skills Corporation, which was just developing a whole youth arm. And so he had gotten a bunch of money from Reader's Digest for a project. He asked me to come join him and run the project. And so that's what I did. 
I've been with that organization in different iterations from 1995 until this past year. And that organization has all kind, has, does a lot of different things. So I, for a while, was working with all the DYS, Department of Youth Services, Court of Adjudicated Youth, helping train teachers in that area. Um, for the past four years, I've been the director of Diploma Plus. This past July, July 1st, we left Commonwealth Corporation, this organization, and became our own 501c3. So now I'm executive director of this independent nonprofit. Why don't we get into Diploma Plus? Why don't you tell me what the mission of Diploma Plus and how it got founded? Sure. Well, I think that one of the good news, bad news right now is that for years we have defined dropouts in this country in a very narrow way that way undercounts them. So in most cities, you become a dropout only if you leave school and you come back and talk to the guidance counselor and sign a form that says you dropped out. If you don't do that in the past, you weren't counted as a dropout. People would say, well, maybe they moved someplace else, right? Even though everyone knew the freshman class in these high schools was large, and the senior class was small. So it didn't logically make sense, but it looked good publicly. So finally, the last couple of years, um, basically America has agreed on a different definition. And the definition is how many young people finish high school in four or five years. So kids who start ninth grade, how many walk across the stage four or five years later? When you do that, you discover that in the cities, it's 50%. It's an enormous number of kids who aren't completing high school. And a majority of them are young people of color, second language learners, the people who have been disengaged and disenfranchised all along. So Diploma Plus kind of before all this happened, Diploma Plus started as a response to a large number of dropouts in Boston. So we started out with a couple of small community-based organizations, and they had been very good at re-engaging kids. So a lot of folks in the community were great at getting kids back in, into programs in the school, you know, really excited and engaged in learning, but aren't very good about raising the rigor. So we end up with young people who have been engaged, but they still don't get the kind of skills they need for success in college and careers and so on. So basically what we did was we started partnering with some CBOs to bring that aspect to their work. CBOs? I'm sorry, community-based organizations. Okay. Uh, like the YMCA, the Boys, Go- Boys Club, Girls Club, often have education programs that are able to re-engage young people. Yep. And we did that for a couple of years and had a lot of success, actually. Enough so that seven years ago when the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation were starting to fund small schools, as part of their portfolio, they were looking for a few examples alternative education programs that were showing some success, and we were. So they approached us and said, you know, basically, can we fund you to expand your model, deepen it, expand it to more schools, um, and basically build it out? So that's, in many ways, that was the genesis of Diploma Plus in, in the way it is now. We basically became a small schools model. We, we opened uh, 12 schools under this particular grant, four in New York City, several in New England, and three in California. And you're the executive director of, of this umbrella organization of Correct. these 12 schools? Right. Well, it's now, it's now 29 schools. It's 29 schools. So we opened 12 and then mm-hmm. had a lot of success with those. Both, both got some more grants, and now increasingly uh, different districts are coming to us and saying, can you come and set a school up in our district? We basically will pay for your cost and do that. So we just this year opened a school in Newark, and we opened two in Baltimore and one in Nashville around that kind of an arrangement. And so do you actually have a facility in which you create this school? 
these are actual schools in a building? There are schools. Some of them are within a school. Some okay. of them have their own, own buildings. But in every case, they are district schools. So we don't have charter schools. We don't do charters. We partner with uh, a district to create these schools. The district pays for the teachers, the principals, the materials, and so on. And we basically provide technical assistance, in particular approach to education, that you know we're finding and research is showing is much more impactful for young people that we're working with. So we, we focus, for example, on performance-based teaching and learning. Now, right now in education, the constant is time. Learning is measured, credits are measured based on how long you sit in your seat, not how much you learn. And that's been true in education in America for a long time. It's a factory model. So we basically, all our schools move away from that. So it doesn't make any difference how long you sit in your seat. What makes a difference is can you show me that you've mastered these standards and competencies? Mm-hmm. If it takes you two days, great. If it takes you two years, mm-hmm. well, you've mastered them, and you need to master them to move on. So we're all performance-based. We have a lot of focus on supportive school culture. So we do a lot with advisories in the schools. Every young person has one adult who they are connected with as mentors. Mm-hmm. So these young people typically disappear in big schools, and sometimes they're just forced out of mm-hmm. big schools. Mm-hmm. So we have a very much, we build very much adult young person relationships. Um, all the kids have to do an internship in the community of 80 hours. Have to take one college course. We have community service learning projects they have to do, as well as the kind of the classroom-based learning. Do a lot of hands-on learning, you know, project-based. Use portfolios instead of tests. So really, kind of do a different way of educating, mm-hmm. which is much more engaging for these young kids who aren't. One quarter of the population is really good at high school. Like I was really good at high school because of the way my mind worked. But three quarters of our young people aren't really good at high school. And so rather than say they're dumb or they have, to, they have to force themselves, we can give them other ways of learning that then build on their strengths. And that's mm-hmm. what we're trying to do, and mm-hmm. you're doing to something with some success. It seems like schools in general, with the no child left behind, have seemed to be moving toward this performance-based model versus uh, just time in and time out. What is the relationship between the, the normal school system dealing with No Child Left Behind and your working with, with the same system and you have a, a, a different model? Yeah. These are all very good questions, Warren. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You're getting the essence very good. Well, yes, yeah, so this is a huge issue. So in some places, we have five schools in Indianapolis, and we got a waiver from the State Department of Education to not have to do carny units and seat time. They really accept our whole performance-based model. So that's really ideal. So they basically accept, and we basically guarantee that young people have mastered competencies based on these particular demonstrations that they'll do. So there's where it's a quid pro quo, but we do have a waiver there. In most places, we don't. And so we really are, it's like we're playing two, two games in the same field. And American education is doing this overall. So the one game is the game of seat time and Carnegie units and X number of credits to graduate. Carnegie so, unit? A Carnegie unit, yeah. So What's that's that? a typical high school unit. So okay. in, in Massachusetts, you have to have X number of hours of English, math, science. And those X number of hours are called Carnegie units after okay. Andrew Carnegie. So there's that going on. That's all based on seat time. You've sat in the seat long enough and you've passed the MCAS, basically. Well, it's not just sitting in the seat long enough because if you don't pass the in- and pass MCAS, the MCAS, yeah, you, you, okay. right. That's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. The MCAS does measure, of course, learning at a certain level, but it doesn't measure, I think, the learning at the level that we really want young people to be. 
but it is standards-based. So our kids do have to take the MCAS as well. And in New York City, I take do the Regents tests. We have the same kind of requirements there. But in these in these other cities, we we have different ways that we try to work the system so we are abiding by the local regulations around seat time and so on. And yet we're giving young people a chance to accelerate their learning and credit accumulation or decelerate if they need more time to spend on it. Mm-hmm. So, for example, most high schools run on, on semesters. A lot of schools run on trimesters, which give the young people one more chance during the year to either you know, go forward or stay back for additional time on a particular subject. What is your success rate in getting these folks that have dropped out of the system re-engaged and, and graduating and mm-hmm. going off to college? Well, we measure uh, several different levels. So we measure engagement, and the best way to measure engagement is things like attendance rate and retention. So how often are kids coming to school? They're basically voting with their feet. Uh, and then if do kids either graduate or they come back to school the following year the same school. And we have about an 80% attendance rate, which in Amherst, Northampton, sounds dismal, but in the inner city, New York City, it's really good especially for young people who have been disengaged from school. So mm-hmm. compared to other schools like ours, we're doing very well in attendance. We have about a 78% retention, so young people either come back or they graduate, which also, you know, is New York City is like 43 typically. So that's, that's the engagement piece. Then we look mm-hmm. at uh, uh, student progress in academics. We measured by either the state tests or by other measures. You know, young people do as well or better than comparable schools in those measures. Then we look at graduation, and about 80% of our young people, it's 82% of our young people who go through the plus phase, the final phase, graduate, and 90% of those are accepted to college and, and plan on going. We're just now tracking whether they actually go to college, but just in terms of interest, having applied, being accepted, they've done all that. So, that's, again, that's more than would have happened otherwise. Now, what is the unique strategy of Diploma Plus to that you're able to re-engage these folks and make them successful in, in high school? One major strategy is their small schools. So our schools are between 100 and 300 students. And that's really important in terms of developing this adult-youth relationship. So many of your young people talk about being in these large urban high schools, and nobody knows them. Nobody cares if they come or not. You know, there's, there's no sense of... of attachment to the school. If no one cares about me, why should I care about my own learning? That's very, very common. So one of the key elements is making a school small and intimate, doing a lot of community activities, community meetings that celebrate people's successes. We have these advisories that meet a couple times a week. So it's one teacher with about 10 or 15 kids who really go in more deeply on some of the issues going on in the community, career college preparation. That whole personalization piece is really important. Second thing is that we make learning very different from what they experienced before. So these young people come to us, and they have failed now for seven, eight, nine, ten years. And if you do the same thing again, you're just going to not only have them fail again, but they're going to become completely turned off. They're coming back for one more chance. We have to give them that one more chance. So we do a lot. You know, we don't sit in desks in rows, and we don't any of that kind of stuff a lot of project-based learning. So the learning revolves around doing some pretty substantial kinds of projects. We do portfolios. So young people have to, over the course of the semester, collect their best work. And then at the end of the semester, they have to present it to a panel, which includes community members, parents, and so on. Um, Then we have this whole future focus. So from the start, from the day a young person comes into a DP school, they know they're going to college. It's like there's no, it's like for you and me, for our kids, 
they knew from, my kids anyway, knew from two years old that they were going to college. These young people don't have that same message. And so they come to the school, and that's the message, and everything works there. And they, So that, that as well. So in that case, it's really kind of a psychological thing where people are saying, you know, we don't just believe you can do okay in high school. You know, we believe you can really be successful by all the standards that, that, that we think matter and you think matter. So I think those are some of the key elements. What's the strategy for re-engaging these folks that have been on the street and have left school? How do you re-engage them into this process? So we have a couple different kinds of young people. We have some who have dropped out and, and returning. We have some young people who are in high school and are already one or two years behind, have failed one or two years. And then in that case, they are about to drop out and get referred by a guidance counselor. Then we've got some young people who are, who are rising ninth graders are coming into high school, but they've already failed one or two subjects coming in. So all of our young people are either overaged and accredited or they've dropped out returning also overaged and accredited. So typically what happens is we first draw from those young people in high schools who have failed and, but haven't disengaged completely, and we also do some recruitment in the community of other young people, but that first core really then starts building the school. So our schools end up being built by these pioneers who want to try out to start with, but then their, their cousins and their sisters and their friends, and it really happens that way. Again, kids march with their feet. Why don't you describe for me the growth rate of your schools, how many schools and yeah. from, the, from the beginning to now, what's, what's the growth rate look like now, and right. what do you see the growth rate going? Yeah. So again, we started out with these two small CBO pilots, and then grew very slowly with basically these small CBO-type schools until the Gates Foundation grant, as I mentioned. Then we opened a couple of networks. Then we went through a whole business planning process, and from, as a result of that, the strategy we developed was to develop networks of schools. So rather than develop you know, one school in Los Angeles and one school in Detroit, we, we're, we decided we're going to develop networks of schools in one location. So we could do a couple things. We could have a coach who could work with multiple schools in one place. The schools could learn together, come together for professional development, training, and so on. And the students could also come together and form a bigger community. So it had a lot of advantages. So we began developing networks. And now over the course of the last couple of years, we're now up to 29 schools in six different networks. Our goal now, we have a new business plan, is to have 51 schools in the next couple of years in eight different networks. Uh, our goal is not to open a million schools, but to open well, kind of a select number of networks with a select number of schools, because we see our mission not just educating these young people, but demonstrating best practice to inform other educators and other mm-hmm. education entities. I think one of the great challenges right now in America is we, we have admitted this huge problem, and we also always have the danger of American public, I think especially because these young people are people of color and, and so on, turning their backs on them especially in a bad economy. So I've been in this career long enough to know a couple of times when the economy's gone bad, then a study comes out showing that JTPA or Job Corps wasn't working well, and then the Congress disinvests. So I think part of what our challenge is is to really show that there are things that work for these young people and also develop those things and disseminate them to other organizations. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's, that's a long way of saying, you know, 51 schools. However... What's happened now is there's been a lot of interest in Diploma Plus, so we may end up going to a much more rapid expansion in a couple different ways. Um, one way is a couple of states have named us in their applications for race to the top funding. The federal government, as part of the Recovery Act, put a fair amount of funding into education reform 
and innovation. Most of it was, it was put into what's called Race to the Top, which is a competitive program for states. They're just applying now for it. And states are looking at like $115 million coming to the state, basically to support the schools, the states, in working with districts who have low-performing schools. So districts who want to do a turnaround of their schools. And so in Indiana, and for example, we were named in their application as one of the programs they're going to use. They get the money, then suddenly there's going to be a lot of demand for DP in Indiana. Mm. And then the second part of this education reform money from the feds is called investing in innovations. In this case, they're looking for models like ours that have had a good track record. They aren't very large. They need some funding to deepen their practice and to do an expansion and develop a plan for you know, more expansion. And so in either of those cases, we may end up expanding more rapidly, and, but they both have enough funding behind them. We can do that with staffing and so on. From what I could see, your funding was not so dependent on federal funding. It's not at all right now. Yeah. No federal funding at all. Right. It's been pretty much foundation-supported, yeah, mm-hmm. which is good news, bad news. There's this whole effect that people talk about called the Gates effect, which is Gates gave a lot of money to schools and, and organizations like ours, and we were able to really put a lot of uh, boots on the ground in terms of this work. So we were able to be pretty rich in terms of the coaching we gave to schools, kind of network activities we gave, because we had a fair amount of money to support that. Well, now that that money is drying up, you know, we basically have to continue the model with a lot less support. So we're back to a real where we should be in terms of this model has to be sustainable or else it's not worth it, no good. So that's the challenge right now for us. How would you say the Baha'i faith has informed your work in education? It's been an important driver for sure. I think one important aspect of Baha'i education and the Baha'i teachings is this sense of the value or definity of all people. Baha'u'llah talks about that man is a mine of gems of inestimable value. There's this whole notion that every human being is just this rich treasure house, and it's our obligation, it's our duty to really bring forth those gems. Education is the way to do that. So when you're working with a population that people have given up on, they've decided they can't learn, they aren't, they aren't motivated, you know, they're going to go to jail, there are all these things that go with the young people I care about that aren't true, first of all, and are very negative. So the Baha'i faith really takes an asset approach to human, human beings in education, and I think that's been really important in terms of informing my work and the work of Diploma Plus. We do a lot of work around that. The second thing is the Baha'is really stress the idea of racial unity and the importance of that. So in the Baha'i teachings, we talk about race unity or ra- racial differences, racial animosity as being the most challenging issue. I think it's really interesting that it's called the most challenging issue. Because mm-hmm. I think it is. I think it's an issue we haven't gotten beyond. I think President Obama is wonderful. A lot has happened from there. But we still have a lot, a lot, a lot of, of work to do in that area. So a lot of what DP does with our teachers and principals, we do a lot of culturally responsive teaching and learning practices. So in our schools, for example, we have a lot of young white teachers who come in enthusiastic, like I was back in Philadelphia, and they have no idea of the young people they're working with. And so basically we do a lot of kind of training and workshops around that kind of teaching and learning practices. Purposely build a staff that is majority, majority people of color. I mean, yeah. it's very important to us to have a staff that represents the community we work with. So that whole notion of you know, really working on 
you know, we see a core value for us is anti-racism and social justice work. It's part of our mission. It's part of everything that we do. So we place education in that context. Mm. It's not that it's not that we're an education organization that does anti-racism work. We're an anti-racism organization that works on that through education. It's a little bit of a nuance, but it's a really sure. important nuance. So those those are a couple of ways. And I think you know when you talk about the basic principles of the Baha'i Faith, I think one of them is the teaching of basically compulsory education that yeah. everyone should have an education. And if we've created a society in which the disenfranchised cannot be able to take advantage of education, then it's our responsibility as a society to find the model to overcome that societal defect. And it sounds like Diploma Plus is... uh, Well, that's that's what we're working on. can't say we've solved that at all, but definitely working in that area, as are others. I mean, we're not the only model doing this, right? One of the issues, too, is that as, especially in the 21st century, we've seen that more and more jobs are high-tech, high-skilled jobs, less and less are low-skilled jobs. So I was out in Michigan this past week because we have a couple of schools we're going to open there. And you go through Detroit, which Mm. basically, when I lived in Michigan before, you know, was a thriving city and was looking forward to a full career at Ford and GM and so on. You work at the assembly line, don't need much education, and now it doesn't work at all. So our young people don't just need 1950s education. They need a very high-level education to be uh, competitive. And we basically, by not providing that, are damning our young people to a life of poverty and, and, disenfranch- and, and disempowerment, and, and we're do- you know, we are doing that. How are you addressing that with your curriculum? Well, we do a lot with a couple of curriculums like Facing History, Facing our he- Ourselves, which is a history curriculum that really focuses on issues of just social justice and racism and so on. And I, th- I think just fundamentally, just the way that we work and our focus on literacy, numeracy, on career development and so on, all is part of that. I guess getting them to college is the first step because once they get to college, then that's where they can learn the skills they need to learn to cope with this 21st century, I suppose. That, that's the idea, yeah. And, yeah, and then yeah. the fact that they don't have the fundamentals is the first right. line of attack. Exactly, right. And the third line, which is not within our purview, is then to get them through college because you may know also there's a huge dropout rate at colleges, especially our community colleges. You know, dropout's not the right term for that. It's really a stop-out. So what happens in community colleges is young people will go for a semester, then they'll stop out, then they'll come back. Mm. So that, you know, that, that definitely serves an important purpose. So that's important to give that yeah. caveat to what I just said. You know? Well, Bill, <laughs> thank you so much for sharing your story and telling us all about Diploma Plus, and good luck with your endeavors in the future. I hope you enjoyed that interview with William Deal, Executive Director of the 501c3 organization Diploma Plus. For a copy of this and other programs, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, where you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
Would you like to go with me down my dead end street? Would you like to come with me to village ghetto land? See the people lock their doors while robbers laugh and steal. Beggars watch and eat their meals from garbage Glass is everywhere. It's a bloody scene. Killing plagues the citizens. Yes, they own police. Children play with rusted cars. Swords cover their hands. Politicians laugh and drink, drunk to all demands. Buying dog food now, starvation roams the street. Babies die before they're born, infected by the greed. Now some folks say that we should be glad for what we have. Tell me, would you be happy? Will it get to On a cosmic train 
switch on summer from a slot machine. Just get what you want to if you want, as you can get anything. I know we've come a long way. We're changing day to day. But tell me, where do the children play? children Rise then 
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.